The following audio is via a Skype call. When I was going up the stairs, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish I wish he'd go away. GIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy November. This is Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're Manson Mitchell, hoping that your trick-or-treating went well. We had five people. We had five people, and I think (laughs) I ate about two pounds of candy. And there's more to go. (laughs) It'd be quite the sugary weekend here in the Manson Mitchell household. We'd like to say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. You Yesterday, you, you were like half man, half machine or something in the picture that I saw on Facebook. Yeah, I was. I was actually the claw. So you've seen uh, the, that, I guess, arcade or video game or whatever you want to call it, at, like local grocery stores or even the arcade. It's I actually built it. It took me about two weeks to build. And so I was one of the items possibly to be selected in the game. And uh, I ended up getting first place here at the Almighty Hubbard Radio. So that makes a uh, back to back to back winner first place. Wow. Yeah. Benny, Benny you're, the, you're the greatest. There is no doubt about uh, it. Thanks. I think it's just putting what? the time into it. You know, a lot of the people, yeah. you know, it, no disrespect. I mean, they, they, they buy their stuff or they put they slap something together. But it's like if you're, if you're going to win, you, you got to put some effort and that's like, Take some time and in, in creativity. So people I, must uh, wait to see what you're going to show up in. Yeah, there's a lot of people that leave because they're like, he's just going to win again. <laughs> I don't <laughs> care. Whatever. They're sore losers. <laughs> well, congratulations Thanks. to Benny. Thank you. And this is, after all, being November 1. This is, according to the liturgical calendar that I grew up with, this is All Souls Day. And Hispanics refer to this as the Day of the Dead. And so uh, I thought, well, that means we better have Ross Allison on with us. <laughs> our thoughts. Who's very much alive, by the he's way. He's very much alive. <laughs> and our, our thoughts trip lightly in his direction because he is an extraordinary man with an extraordinary number of stories. And he's always adding more to relate to his spooky business that he handles so well. We know firsthand from having visited his headquarters in downtown Seattle. And so, yes. We have talked to uh, hundreds of people who we have never met. Right. We, we only know them as, you know, people on the radio. This is a man we actually met, Gary. That's true. Two years ago. And, well, how about we, if we relay that story after you give the man his mad props and we bring him on? That's right. And here we're talking about mini props. There's so much more that could be said. But for the record today... Ross Allison is president and founder of A-Ghost. What a great acronym. Advanced Ghost Hunters of Seattle, Tacoma, with over 30 years of investigating the paranormal and nearly 20 years running a ghost hunting group. Ross travels internationally to investigate paranormal activity, collect ghost stories, and research cemeteries. You may also find Ross wandering the streets of Seattle. After all, he owns and hosts the Spooked in Seattle Ghost Tours that take guests to the various haunted spots throughout the Seattle area. And he's haunting Manson Mitchell today. Ross Allison, we're so happy to have you with us. Well, it's an honor to be back. 
This is our second try. This is take two. This is take two. We tried for last weekend. Technical difficulties way beyond our control. Technical poltergeists. Poltergeist got into the equipment, and that was it. That was all she wrote. But I was really glad that you said that you would come back as quickly as possible so we could do this interview. It was a couple of years ago that we met you and actually broke bread after a nice tour of the uh, Spooked in Seattle site there and with our dear friend who is no longer with us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Ross, you will always be associated with our last pleasant encounter with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We had a wonderful meal at Ivers down there on the waterfront. You were a part of that table where we had several of us around there. It was a great time, and that's fixed in my memory. Oh, yeah, and such a great loss. She was such a sweet woman. She was the one who told us about you and said, when yeah. you come to Seattle, you need to meet Ross Allison. And so we, we did. We made a day of it, parked not too far away, and came into your place of business and were very intrigued by all the things that you have in your establishment Collected probably over many years, I would say. And before we get to that inventory, though, Ross, I did want to give you an opportunity. We've had people there on one day in particular we dedicated to Rosemary. We had several people. And since we've had one or two who've been able to share their own personal recollections and their favorite memories of Rosemary Ellen Guiley, you must have some stories of your own. So at this point, feel free to share them. Well, you know, I have to say it it was such a a sweet honor to actually hang out with her, be with her. I've been in a couple of events that she was speaking at. And, you know, the sad thing is it actually came into her life, you know, a little bit later. So I didn't get to hang out with her as much as, like, you guys did. But um, I, I do have to say, you know, by one night that uh, we were doing a conference and um, we all got together for dinner that night. And I just sat at this table and I'm realizing that I, I am sitting with some of the best-known people in the paranormal field. You know, Johnny Zappas was there, Rosemary was there, David Weatherly was there. And I was so honored to, to be around these people that have been in the field for as long as they have. And, and these are the people that, you know, I recognize the field, grew up, you know, reading their books. And then just to look at them and just like, wow, I'm sitting at the same table as these people. It was just, it was a huge eye-opener and to be, you know, acknowledged by these people into the field. So for me, that was a huge honor just to, to, to be sitting next to Rosemary. And I, and I told her that. I said, you know, what a huge honor it is to be next to you and, and to know, you know, where she came from and, you know, the battles that she fought. You know, because the thing is, you have to understand that, you know, they go back before ghost hunting or the paranormal was widely accepted as it is today. You know, a lot of these people, you know, consider like the Warrens and stuff like that, they took more criticism than the praises that we receive today. And so I just, you know, I just want to put a big, you know, thank you out to those people that really stepped forward and, you know, worked hard to get their names out there. And especially now when it is more widely accepted. Ross, I, I understand that you stand on the shoulders of greatness and at the same time, I, I hear you being rather humble when, when Gary tells me that you yourself have been doing this uh, as, a, as a profession for quite a long time. And so you are not exactly new to the business. 
I know, but it, it's still, you know, I, I want to pay a lot of respect to the people that were doing it before me. Because like I said, you know, there was a time when this was not socially acceptable. You know, a lot of times, even when I started out, you, when you had the opportunity to do media, you still had to, you know, wonder if they're going to make you look good or they're going to make you look bad. You know, I've had media that said I look more like a member of a boy band than a ghost hunter. You know, so was, you still had to deal with that. And these people were doing that all the time, you know, not knowing if they were going to look good or just look like a, you know, a, a cuckoo, you know, in a lot of these, you know, television spots and, you know, radio spots or even, you know, newspapers and magazines. So I really do have to give them a lot of credit because it was a lot tougher back then than it is today. It definitely was a lot tougher. You had your superstars. There were people like Hans Holzer, for example. I remember oh, yeah. as a parochial. When I was a kid, I'd be watching TV, the old Merv Griffin show, for example. He was not averse to bringing on people and talking about the spooky subjects more than other uh, t television talk show hosts would. I think Merv really deserves credit for that. And he would talk to Hans Holzer, and I used to think, could it be? You know, are there really ghosts? Are there actual haunted places that one could visit? Is there such a thing as reincarnation? I really didn't. How about ESP? And it was great to listen to him speak with total confidence in his subject matter as though it were as natural as breathing, whereas many people were not only skeptical, Ross, but they were also many times cynical. And that's something right. that still is with us today. Right, right. So, you know, it's just, it's just amazing where we've, we've, we've come from. And right now, you know, obviously, you know, ghost hunting is a big thing. You know, there's tons and tons of shows out. There's tons more coming out. So, you know, one of the things is, you know, it is one of those things where it's, it's getting more difficult. You know, it's more competitive out there because when I started my ghost hunting group, we were probably one out of 100 groups nationally. Now each state could easily have a hundred plus group, so it is kind of chaotic out there, and uh, hopefully it'll get a little more serious. But uh, I, I'm still very proud to be a part of the field. What initially got you involved in this, Ross? I mean, how young were you, and and what was it that kind of tickled your your fancy, your intuition, or your intellect <laughs> that got you started on this road? Oh, I blame my mother. I have a mother that loves ghost stories, so I grew up listening to all these stories ever since I was a little kid, and I was just fascinated with these stories. I, I was just like, wow, do people really experience this stuff? Because to me, as a kid, this was crazy. And so for me, it was just that, that, that fascination with these you know, creepy ghost stories and wanting to know, do people really experience this? And then from there, you know, I wanted to go to haunted places if I had experienced that stuff myself. So it's kind of funny, too, you know, because we talk about the history of a lot of this. You know, when I got involved, most people involved in the field had actually had experiences. They grew up in haunted places. That's what drove them to this. Me, I was kind of the odd man out because I was just curious. I hadn't had those experiences yet. So for me, yeah, it was just that, that curiosity. The curiosity led to your pioneering efforts, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. 
why don't you go back in time a bit with us, Ross, and indicate what some of your earlier experiences were like, the earliest, in fact, and then kind of take us along a timeline that also indicates the degree of sophistication that you came to bring to your work, because it's big business now, but of course it wasn't always that way, as you've indicated. Right. Well, for me, you know, I started my group back in uh, 2000, and I actually had been involved in the paranormal when I was living in California. So I got to, you know, hang out with the old Lloyd Arabach back there and, and and go to a lot of the, the big events, you know, like, you know, with Dr. Barry Taft. And so for me, that was the start of it all when I got to California. But then in 2000, I decided to move back to uh, Washington. And ghost hunting was not a big thing in Washington there. So I ended up uh, starting my group. Um, after the Halloween of 2000, because, of course, Halloween, what a great time to go ghost hunting. But, of course, when I got a hold of my friends and said, hey, guys, let's go check out the cemetery down the street, all of my friends wanted to hit the bars first, then go to the cemetery. <laughs> you know? So it's like, you know, I don't need to be dragging a bunch of drunk people, you know, through a cemetery. And I realized, you know, there's got to be other people that are very serious about this. So a friend of mine just said, why don't you just start your own group? So I did start a ghost. And from there, you know, we just started to take off like crazy because I do think Washington was very hungry for this. They didn't have anybody out there to contact when people were experiencing paranormal phenomena. So that really launched us into the forefront. And I do have to say that, you know, once I started, you know, the ghost hunting field in the, parent, in, in the Northwest, that's when I actually started having a lot of these, you know, personal experiences. One of my first physical experiences was when we actually investigated Alcatraz. Alcatraz was, was uh, a pretty spot. Uh, they opened up a lot of places open to the public. And uh, one of the places that they uh, opened up was the Old Borg. Now, if you're not familiar with Alcatraz's history, it actually started out as a military base before it became a military prison, before it became a state penitentiary that it was known before it retired. Now, this is where they actually keep the bodies before they ship them off to San Francisco. So they took me uh, to this location. I went down what uh, this tunnel that goes down underground, and they were leading me to a room that used to be where they stored the gunpowder because, of course, they had to keep it cool. Now, I'm the first one to enter the room, and I take a picture. You know, it's just a dirt floor, brick walls, brick ceiling. And I want to get a picture of the entrance. Now, what's interesting is my members are starting to filter in behind me. So I turn around and I start backing up because I want to get the widest angle as possible. And as I'm backing up, one of my members puts his, his hand on my shoulder and physically stops me because obviously I'm backing them into the corner. So I turn around and I apologize and there's nobody behind me. And I was just shocked by this experience because I was expecting to see one of my members behind me and again there was nobody there and I felt the weight of a hand the pressure of the fingers and again it physically stopped me as I was taking a step backwards again no one was there so for me that was my first physical experience well I, I would have been uh, out the door really quick after that <laughs> with or without a door right <laughs> That's the kind of thing that 
makes an indelible impression. Were there other things that felt like, I mean, these are hair-raising experiences, Ross. Were there other incidents that led you to believe that there is an ability on the part of spirits to actually make contact through this veil of immateriality in a way that our understanding of science just can't account for? Oh, yeah. You know, as you continue on with the field, it's just one of the things you have more and more of these unique experiences, you know, from, you know, being touched, uh, hearing their name being called. Um, I've had situations where I've seen, you know, dark, shadowy figures. You know, the one thing I do have to admit, I have yet to see a full-body apparition. And of all my years of doing this, that's the one thing I've yet to experience. But I did feel that I saw something through my peripheral vision. And this is one of my uh, most interesting experiences. We were investigating uh, Shakers, which is in uh, Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. And this is an old brothel. And I was doing some experiments that night with one of my uh, volunteers. And I had him spending the night in the old brothel. And he was a little terrified to do this. And so, you know, halfway through the night, he was telling me, you know, please, please, Ross, you know, I, I'm a little too scared. Can I just go sleep in my car? And I said, you know, I really tried to coax him to continue to do this. And so I was able to coax him to stay, you know, through the night. Now, I was sleeping downstairs. He was alone upstairs. Now, I was having trouble sleeping because every time I started to nod off, something loud or weird would happen in the room. So something was keeping me awake throughout the night. Now, as I'm, you know, laying on the couch, you know, trying to get to sleep, I can hear, you know, um, Michael is his name, coming down the stairs. And I'm thinking, great, he's going to tell me that, you know, he wants to go sleep in the car, you know, he can't do it anymore. And so I'm trying not to pay attention to him. Now, the, the room that I'm staying in has a big window for the doorway that leads out to the hallway and the staircase. So sure enough, as I'm, you know, just trying to pay attention to my camera and not acknowledge him right away, I see him through my peripheral vision walk by the window and then go down, continue down the next staircase. So I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, maybe, you know, maybe something did happen. I should check on him. So I go down the staircase out to the door, and I realize the door is locked from the inside. But I'm still really exhausted because I was up all night. So I go ahead and unlock the door. I go out to his car, and he's not there. So I go ahead you know, and go back upstairs, and I go up to the room where he's staying, and sure enough, there he is, you know, laying on the bed. And I was just like, well, wait a minute. I, I swear I, I saw you leave. I heard you leave as, as well. He's like, no, I've been in here the whole time. So it was one of those missed opportunities where I could have looked at the ghost face-to-face, and I failed to do so. Well, that huh. opportunity eluded you, yeah. but as much research as you do, Ross, will... I'm sure, provide you with many other encounters. And in particular, I did want to say that when it comes to full-body apparitions, I did an interview on this program years ago, and I remember being told by an investigator that it takes a tremendous amount of psychic energy, however that is arranged, on the other side in order for there to be a full-body apparition. If somebody, for example... You know, if somebody, for example, went to the guillotine, I'm sorry to be ghastly about it, but if somebody had that experience of being 
beheaded, you know, and uh, they want to let people know what happened to them. You might not see the whole body, you might see the head. And the idea is this is the way they died and this is what perhaps haunts them on the other side because of the incredible trauma of such an ending to one's life. Other people, they might have been known for um, being fast. They were, and so they show their legs because they were track stars back in the day. And so you see a pair of legs there and someone sitting in a chair, it's, uh, their legs were their fortune. And so it represents them rather symbolically, whereas to put yourself fully out there would take quite an effort, I'm told. Oh, yeah. You know, there's been a lot of situations where I have seen dark shadows move across the room in, in a human-like form. So I, I believe, you know, for me personally, I think that's another form of apparition. I just would love to see, you know, full body, you know, all color, you know, the outfit that they're wearing. And that's just one of the things I, I haven't experienced yet. One of the things that um, I, I understand, Ross, is that you have um, traveled, done a lot of traveling to various haunted places. You haven't <clears throat> confined yourself to the Seattle-Tacoma area, even though that is part of the name, Advanced Ghost Hunters of Seattle-Tacoma. You mentioned Alcatraz, and you mentioned um, Milwaukee. What other kinds of places have you been to where you found things to be particularly haunted? Oh, I've been all over the world. Um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend, you know, days in a haunted castle in, in you know, in Scotland. In Roslyn Castle, we had uh, a whole castle to ourselves for four nights. Wow. I, you know, oh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, below us, you know, was literally four levels of dungeon. So, you know, I've been all over the world, all over the U.S. I've been to all 50 states. Every year, I take my team on a haunted road trip, and then we also try to go overseas. So I don't limit myself just to the Washington area. There's so many amazing places, so many haunted places. I want to experience it all before my time. That's right. Then you've got to get to us there who remain behind. <laughs> I'm saying that <laughs> I don't even know that I'm the one remaining behind to tell you that you never know in this life. And then you're the one trying to get through with proof of the afterlife from that side. That's actually a fascinating concept. I did want to ask you, though, Ross, since you brought up the castle in Scotland and had this incredible experience, we have a few minutes before we go to break. Why don't you tell us how that went? What was the equipment? What was the team? What did you experience? Well, there was about uh, six of us staying at the castle. Um, and every night we would go down into the dungeon. And we did all kinds of interesting things. Now, June, who you actually personally met when we had that dinner, uh, she's mm -hmm. my vice president. And she's also an amazing opera singer as well. So one of the things that we did when we were down in the you know, dungeons is we had her sing some old Scottish, you know, folk songs to see if that might trigger some things. And uh, she did an amazing job down there. And it actually was pretty interesting because we had actually heard a lot of strange noises down there. Um, we actually got some strange light formations in our photography. Um, I do have to say, when we were upstairs, there's also stories of children that haunt upstairs. And uh, we had an experience with the door that would open and close by itself. Um, some strange smells were also reported as well. A lot of it was, uh, uh, unfortunately, odd and personal experiences. 
you know, you don't always get the opportunity to capture a lot of this, you know, in recording. But um, it was an amazing experience, and I would love to go back again. I have heard from some paranormal investigators that Scotland is just rich with stories, and they can be found anywhere on Earth, that's for sure. But Scotland in particular has these well-preserved places, these castles, various other types of venues where the ghosts are comfortable enough remaining where they are or are otherwise earthbound. And so when you go there, the probability is fairly high that if you're seeking that type of experience, there's a good probability that you'll have the experience. Oh, yeah. This was a rich history. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, to have that unique experience of staying in a castle, you know, by yourself is just just amazing, you know. And that's not just the only castle. You know, we did one year where we actually did all haunted castles. That was part of the trip where we actually went into London. We went out to Chillingham Castle. Then we went up to Scotland and did the Roslyn Castle. Then we went over, you know, across the way and spent a couple nights at Bolly Golly Castle. So... I'm always looking for amazing adventures when it comes to haunting. I love this idea of the haunted road trips, too. We touched a bit on that on another program that I happen to host, American Road Trip Talk, which is on Fridays, 1 o'clock Pacific time. As a matter of fact, you were my guest last week. And we talked about this idea of going far afield. I envy you those opportunities, and I think that Suzanne and I are very desirous of creating those for ourselves. Because if you know where you're going and you can get permission, you can go to some incredible places, including in Pennsylvania. That's one where you've had the opportunity to have some pretty eerie experience, experiences there. Was it called Eastern State, the penitentiary? Oh, yeah. Many, many years ago. Gosh, I'd have to be close to 15 years ago or maybe a little bit more. Um, I was uh, doing a show for Discovery Channel called America's Ghost Hunters. And this is before all the television shows came out. And uh, they actually had taken my team out to uh, Eastern State Penitentiary. And we spent a night at this place. And it is an amazing uh, old prison. Uh, now it's more like a museum. You can still tour it. Um, but it's one of the most historic places because it was also uh, a situation where they kept the, all their prisoners in the complete isolation. So they weren't even allowed mm. to talk with the other prisoners. Um, oh, my God. And also, oh, yeah. And also uh, Al Capone had stayed there for a short time as well. And his ghost story, and this happened right after the St. Valentine Massacre. And he believed, Al Capone believed, that he was haunted by one of the men that he had killed. And so a lot of the prisoners said that late at night they would hear Al Capone screaming out this guy's name, leave me alone, leave me alone. Yeah. So we actually got to investigate that place, and we were brought in because, you know, my team has always been very high-tech. So we We will get Ross back. It's okay. We're at bottom of the hour. Why don't we go ahead and take our break, Suzanne, and then we'll reestablish contact. This is a time for establishing contact. That's what we're talking about today. On this side of the veil, we'll get Ross Allison back. So let us go ahead and take our break. You are listening to Manson Mitchell on Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Stay tuned. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. 
Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Say, friends, the holiday gift-giving season soon will be right around the corner. It's November already. It's not too early to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road Magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue, American Road makes a perfect gift for road-tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it, too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com, click subscribe, and for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Ross Allison. Ross, if people would like to connect with you, you've got a website, you've got a, a actual storefront, you've got a lot going on. Please let our listeners know how they can learn more about Ross Allison and Spooked in Seattle. Oh, you bet. Uh, I always encourage people to look me up on Facebook, you know, Ross Allison Ghost Center. And follow me, because uh, I do a lot of traveling, as I said, and a lot of times when I do this traveling, I'll do live feeds. So you can actually uh, check out some of the places we're actually investigating. But, of course, you know, you can go to our website at aghost.org, and that's A-G-H-O-S-T dot org. Um, you can check out uh, Spooked in Seattle at spookedinseattle.com. And uh, also, if you're interested in any of my books, uh, uh, check out Amazon. You can find uh, a lot of my stuff out there. Great. Thank you. That is wonderful. And Ross has assured us that he is at four bars, sounding good. Suzanne and I were in Maine. But not a drink in his hand, just four bars. (laughs) That we know of. (laughs) The man can suit himself. When we were up in Maine recently, Suzanne and I found that when you have hilly country in New England, you definitely will lose cell service. And that happened repeatedly. Couldn't get on the Internet either. Quite frustrating. So we were in Bar Harbor, and I recommend it as a gorgeous place to visit. Just don't count on good Wi-Fi there. We nicknamed it One Bar Harbor because it's just (laughs) you're not going to get a lot of power there for whatever reason. So thank you, Ross, for joining us today. We're delighted to be having you the entire hour, and we shall carry on. I believe that you were telling us some stories about Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, and in particular, that Al Capone story really gets me. I think that he was, if, if I recall, wasn't he haunted by one of his victims? Yes, yes. 
that is the story that uh, they tell you if you ever visit uh, State Penitentiary, is that uh, one of the guys that he had uh, assassinated during the Valentine St. Valentine Massacre uh, had haunted him. And they say late at night, while, you know, in the prison, the, the prison guards and the, the prisoners would hear Al Capone just yelling throughout the night, leave me alone, leave me alone. So that was uh, definitely one of the ghost stories that they would share there. You kind of have to figure he had it coming. Oh, yeah, I'm surprised it's just the one. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> exactly, a, a vengeful ghost, and, and I can understand why, that's for sure. Do you find haunted locations everywhere, or are places like hospitals and penitentiaries and schools more haunted than the average place? Well, you think about uh, a lot of these places, like hospitals, theaters, are also very well known to be haunted. So you got a lot of these places that are quite visited uh, quite often. So I think when you have a lot of that energy coming and going, um, I think some of that, it, it draws a lot of these, these hauntings. You know, hospitals are notorious for being haunted because a lot of people die there. Um, you know, theaters are haunted because, you know, you have a lot of people on the stage um, trying to fulfill their dreams. And sometimes that doesn't always happen, so they hang on to that. Um, you know, prisons, you got a lot of negative energy there because of all these prisoners just, you know, all in one uh, massive spot. So I think, you know, when you have situations where this energy is constantly being filtered through with, you know, people coming and going all the time, it easily could be a prime spot for a haunting. Is it emotional energy, Ross? Is that mostly what that is, high emotions of one kind or another? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that's one reason why a lot of prisons, if you ever go to them, they carry a lot of that very negative energy because uh, you think of all the negative, you know, men and women that have been in these places. You know, you're, you're fighting to survive in these places. So you kind of have to have this very strong soul to survive. And then, you know, you go to a theater, and then you, it's a totally different environment, a totally different feeling. Sometimes, you know, even when you go to a hospital, you could have that, you know, strong, overwhelming emotion of depression. Because you think of all the sadness that takes place in these hospitals, you know, people who lost their loved ones. So, yeah, so each place, you know, has this unique signature when it comes to these, these emotions. Do you think that you have interacted more with ghost imprints where it's like a loop that keeps repeating itself? Or do you think you've interacted more with ghosts who know that you're there in, in this space-time continuum? Right. Well, when it comes to residual hauntings, I do find that it's about 80% of most activity out there can be residual hauntings. People are unaware that uh, we ourselves can leave energy behind in previous places that we lived in. Uh, one of the most you know, common things that I talk about is a lot of times when people move into a house, and a lot of times they'll report you know, hearing walking up and down the hall. And I say, well, a lot of times that may not be an intelligent haunting. That could easily be residual energy. And it doesn't always have to be uh, of somebody that had passed. It could be uh, something that you yourself had left behind because maybe at one point in your life, you were going through a very stressful time in your life, and you were just pacing up and down the hall, just contemplating what are you going to do next. 
And sometimes that energy can just be recorded into that environment, and it'll just play itself out over and over again. So there's a lot of situations when you go into a haunted location, and you kind of have to determine, are you dealing with something intelligent? Is it responding to you, or is it doing its own thing? And is there a pattern to the activity? And if you can identify that pattern, then it makes it easier to try and capture that phenomena, because then you're, you're easily there at the right place at the right time. So that's why when we do our investigations, we have our clients journal their experiences, because once they're journaling, it's easy to determine if there is a pattern to it. And if there is a pattern, then you know that you might be dealing with something that's more residual than an actual haunting. I'd like to put the focus back on Seattle now, Ross, because you are the curator, the owner of a wonderful tour, Spooked in Seattle. Seattle, and you have a headquarters that's associated with Underground Seattle, and I think Pioneer Square, if memory serves, in that wonderful, gilded, and yet dusty and history-laden part <laughs> of the Emerald City, and that just lends a certain atmosphere. It certainly made a big impression on Suzanne and myself when we visited a couple of years ago, and there are people who would like to go and take the tour, I'm quite sure. So tell us about Spooked in Seattle. How do you operate it? What are your goals there as the operator? You're the owner of this tour. You're trying to achieve a certain effect other than scaring people and getting the hair on the back of their neck to, to rise. That's one thing. But what is it in terms of authenticity and the standard of quality that you seek to uphold? Well, I, I do have to say I am quite honored to the fact that Spooked in Seattle has been voted by numerous media outlets as one of the top ghost tours in America. And that is such a huge honor for especially a very young city. You know, we're in the you know, Northwest. That was like the last, you know, part that was developed of the U.S. So I think, you know, what has made us successful is the fact that I keep it real. You know, I, as you guys have discussed, you know, I travel all over the world. And when I do a lot of these, you know, travels, I'm always checking out the local ghost tours. And I started to find that a lot of these tours, were making up stories or dramatizing stories because our main focus was to scare people because it's a ghost tour, you know, and you, you kind of expect that. But me as a paranormal investigator, when I go on a ghost tour and I hear a great story of a place that I would like to investigate personally, and then I go and do my research and find out that, you know, these things never happened at this property, I was really, really let down. And so as I, you know, was doing my own research and investigations in the Seattle area, I started to realize that I had a lot of this information. I had a lot of great stories. I had a lot of great uh, evidence collected, especially, you know, in the Pioneer Square area. And so as I was, you know, taking a lot of these tours and getting, you know, very frustrated with a lot of these tours making up stuff, I realized, you know what, I've got a lot of great stuff here. I want to get it out there. So I think I'm going to do my own, you know, ghost tour. And it just kind of took off from there. You know, I wanted to get give people an opportunity to get inside a lot of these haunted places on our tours. So we do try to focus on getting inside, you know, one or two places during uh, the tour. We also, you know, try to focus on, you know, opening up places for public investigation. So if you've ever wanted to do an actual investigation, you know, we'll, treat, we'll teach you how to do the basics. And we'll, you know, set you loose in a, in a haunted location. You know, we do that at the Seattle Underground. We do that um, also at University Heights, which is an old elementary school. And then we also do that on the USS Turner Joy, which is a retired Navy destroyer. 
So for me, I think my main focus for Spooks in Seattle is to educate people. And I say this, you know, at the end of every tour that I do, is, you know, I want people to hopefully have these experiences and walk away learning more than they did when they started the tour. Because, you know, like I said, I, I think our success is the fact that we just keep it real. That has a great deal to do with it. And people sense the reality of spirits who are around or energies that sometimes make things move and you wouldn't expect that and it becomes a hair-raising experience. If you, anybody goes onto YouTube and you go for uh, just in the, the window there, if you were to enter Mr. Creepy or Mr. Creepy Doll, you would find out quite a bit about what makes this place tick, spooked in Seattle. Why don't we start there as we get deeper into what is available on the tour? Mr. Creepy, the doll, I have met Robert the doll, whom I did not find particularly creepy at all. As a matter of fact, I kind of like the energy around him in Key West, Florida, a celebrated haunted doll. And I went and oh, had yeah. that direct experience, took a couple of pictures with Robert's permission. But when you go to spooked in Seattle, you have a doll of your own that is the source of no small amount of scary stories and controversy. So why don't you share that for our listeners? Yes, everybody loves Mr. Creepy. Uh, he's become our little local celebrity. Now, Mr. Creepy is um, an old ventriloquist doll. He was handmade uh, back in the 1960s, and he was made by a retired ventriloquist artist. Uh, he actually goes back to the nor uh, Northwest Vaudeville days. Now, in his retirement years, he made this doll. Now, he made this doll in his likeness. And he also made a female counterpart in his wife's likeness. What makes these dolls extra creepy is they actually use their real hair on the dolls. Now, uh, unfortunately, the couple had passed away. And after their passing, the dolls were sold as a pair. So a woman who actually deals with antiques she actually purchased the dolls, and she put them on display on a shelf behind a register. Now, they sat there for a good long time. No issues whatsoever. But unfortunately, they had sold her building. So this means that she had to pack up her store and move to another location. So she packed up the dolls separately, and she uh, put them into a storage unit. So when she got her new location, she went to the storage unit, pulling pieces to, you know, stock her store. And she found uh, Mr. Creepy, but she did not find the female counterpart. But she went ahead and took him, and she put him in a glass case behind the register. Now, this is where things get interesting. Right away, she said she started feeling there was somebody always standing behind her and watching her, breathing down the back of her neck. She constantly got the chills. But then she started to notice that, you know, day after day, his eyes would look like they were moving, you know, left to the right. And what's really interesting, and I do have to personally admit, I've experienced his eyes moving. Now, his eyes are actually spring-loaded. So what that means is uh, when you're playing around with a trigger to move his eyes left or right, once you let go of the trigger, his eyes automatically spring back to the center. So, of course, the only way to make his eyes, you know, to stay left or right is you have to be holding the trigger. But there are times when she would come into the store and his eyes would stay to the left or stay to the right. Then she said there were days that his head would be turned to the left or to the right, looking up or looking down. 
One day she even came in and found that the glass case was wide open. Now, after having these experiences, she decided that she had enough of them. She didn't want to deal with them on a daily basis. So she moved them to the back of the store and she put them on a bottom, bottom shelf. She didn't have to see them every day. Well, when I go to a lot of these antique stores, you know, looking for pieces for my death museum, I always ask, you know, do you have anything that's odd? Because I like to hear their stories. And sometimes they'll point out some of the most interesting pieces that they have in their shop. Well, she introduced me to Mr. Creepy. And I just love this guy. I said, you know what? I would be more than happy to give him a home at Spook in Seattle. So she was so happy to get rid of him that she sold me him for one dollar. <laughs> so oh yeah. Wow. So I, I brought up the spook in Seattle and I put him in this antique glass case that we had. And one day I was actually alone in the store and I heard this thud against glass. And I immediately thought something happened in the gift shop. So I go out and I'm exploring the gift shop and I can't find anything disturbed. And I'm trying to figure out what caused that noise. So I start walking around, and as I'm coming around the tables, I'm now facing that glass case. And I noticed that his head was turned and up against the glass. So being the ghost hunter I am, I quickly pull out my cell phone, and I take a picture just to prove that it really did happen. Well, what's interesting, and you can find this picture online, is if you look at the reflection in the glass, if you, if you check out the picture of Mr. Creepy, you'll see that he's got very cartoonish features, big round eyes, you know, big round cheeks, a big round face, you know? But then when you look at the reflection, you'll see that his eyes are very droopy, more elongated, more lifelike. I think that is the reflection of the man that actually haunts this doll. Wow. And so, yeah. And a lot of people ask me, well, why is he haunting this doll? And I think he's actually looking for the female counterpart. They hadn't been separated since the day they were created. So I have been on a quest to try and find her because I would love to bring those two souls together. So I have been known to publish articles, Mr. Creepy looking for Mrs. Creepy. And that doll probably exists somewhere. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of, you know, who has it and where it went from the storage unit. I'm missing one piece in there. Maybe you covered it. How did the two get split up? Was it the lady with the store who sold them separately? No, they went into a storage unit. Yeah. And only one came out. Two went in and one came out of the storage unit. Now, I will have to admit that this woman who owns this antique store, she's a bit of a hoarder. So she not only has just one storage unit, she's got, you know, five or six storage units just filled with all the stuff. And I have personally offered, you know, can I please, you know, just go through these units to see if I can try and find her. And she just won't let anybody go through it personally. So I have been constantly on her. To, you know, hopefully one day she'll find her so I can bring these two together. Hmm. I hope that That's happens. Interesting. There's a romance there. Yeah. It's eerie, but it is romantic at the same time. Oh, yeah. Ross, where else should we go? We're poking around the corners, and you have a lot of nooks and crannies at Spooked in Seattle. I remember the Death Mask Collection, as you pointed out on the other program where we did an interview last week. It's a matter of before photography, people wanted to have a memory. They wanted to have that impression, and that's how you used to do it, with a death mask. Oh, yeah. Now, death masks were, again, you know, very popular at the time before photography. But I, I do have to point out that it was more popular amongst the, the wealthy and the famous 
because if you didn't get to meet them face-to-face in life, you now have the opportunity to meet them face-to-face in death. So death masks, you know, were uh, a way to remember individuals um, after they had died. Because otherwise, you know, before photography, you had to have an artist do some sort of, you know, painting or rendering of you. So that was the only way you could actually remember how these, you know, people looked. So there's all kinds of interesting things when it comes to our death museum. Uh, we are the first death museum in the Northwest. So if you like, you know, uh, morning dresses uh, that go back to the Victorian era, morning jewelry, which a lot of people are unaware of, uh, they made a lot of jewelry out of people's hair after they passed away. So, you know, women would wear these, you know, pieces of jewelry that was just all braided human hair. So that is uh, another very popular piece if you ever come out there. I have a lot of embalming tools, uh, vintage bombing tables, uh, old, you know, coffins from the 1800s, just all kinds of fun pieces. That's, uh, you know what? If Sven makes road trips, I know one place where he ought to go. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I think I think he would really get a lot He'd out of it. a visit to yeah. your place for sure. That is amazing to me. I do want to ask you, Ross, for your personal impressions. I'd like to solicit your opinion. When you go to the old curiosity shop down on the waterfront and you go, I have made many trips there. I'm fascinated by the place and who isn't when they go see it. So much to see. I think particularly of Sylvester, and I forget the name of the woman who is mummified there and, and stands next to him in the cases. Yeah, she actually came uh, much later. Uh, Sylvester's uh, one of the original pieces for the Yale Curiosity Shop, and I, I have to, I'm there with you, I can't remember her name either. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, Yale Curiosity Shop is, again, probably a little bit of the inspiration behind um, our death museum because when I started my ghost tours, I actually started them from the Yield Curiosity Shop. And so I had been there, you know, almost every day, you know, with the tours. And they have a lot of uh, amazing pieces. Now, unfortunately, uh, they just uh, remodeled the waterfront. So they had to scale down a lot of their museum there as well. So if you ever are in the Seattle area, that is one place you definitely want to check out is the Old Curiosity Shop. And I'm hoping that uh, maybe we can partner with them again because, you know, we had to stop doing our tours on the waterfront because of all the construction they were doing on the waterfront. The waterfront was just tore apart. And it's still kind of tore apart because they also just tore down the, the viaduct. So that, hopefully, once that's done, we can start bringing uh, our waterfront uh, ghost tour back up and running. I would love to be there when you do that. The viaduct in particular, that, that's, a, that's a ghost in my imagination because it was brought down for strategic purposes. But I still remember when I would be on the viaduct heading south and I would see off to the right the waterfront. I remember seeing the old kingdom through there and, of course, the ferries at Coleman Dock. And I just got so excited. I took pride in Seattle. I lived there uh, almost 22 years, and I just remember saying, this is my city. This is the Emerald City. I dreamed of coming here and took many trips before circumstances were right to allow me to move there and to spend so much time in the company of great people and this wonderful architecture and the wonderful history of Seattle. And the waterfront and the viaduct have so much to do with that. There is an intimacy for Seattleites when they get down to that neighborhood in Alaskan way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, the start of it all. You know, the pioneers, you know, 
started right there on the waterfront as well. You know, they originally had started over in West Seattle, but they couldn't survive through the first winter. Um, so they end up crossing the bay, starting it right there, you know, in Pioneer Square. And I, I just, I, I love Seattle. I really do. I, I have to admit, I tried to get away a couple times, but as you guys know, I've been down to California a few times. And kept coming back, and obviously there was a reason why I kept coming back, because, you know, they needed me to get the whole paranormal field, you know, going up in the Northwest. Absolutely. Even Smith Tower, which many people don't know, there was a time when Smith Tower in downtown Seattle was the tallest building west of the Mississippi. Now I don't think it's the tallest building on its own block. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But uh, that is another historic building that uh, we do talk about on our ghost tours. Uh, one of the most famous ghosts there is of a little boy. Now, there's uh, various different stories as to who this little boy is. Uh, some of it may uh, originate from the fact that a little boy was killed there during one of the Native American raids, um, and he was one of the, the first casualties uh, during that raid. And they believe, you know, since they built the Smith Tower on that property, they believe that that little boy could be the little boy that haunts it. But I do have to tell you, um, you know, being a tour guide for that area, a lot of the security guards would stop us when we'd have a tour in front of the Smith Tower, and they would always come out and tell us their personal experiences. Now, the Smith Tower is also famous for the fact that it still has the old hand-operated uh, elevators. And if you're not familiar with that, that means that somebody personally has to be in the elevator to operate the elevator. It's not just like go and push a button. They have to, you know, pull the crank and get the elevator going and then stop it right when it gets to the right floor. So some historic value there. Now That would be worth checking out on the tour there. We got about twenty seconds. Is it haunted? Is that that's what you're trying to tell us? There's a haunting? Yeah, yeah the elevators will move by itself in the middle of the night. Oh my goodness. Once again, Ross Allison, thank you so much. We can't wait to have you back again. Spooked in Seattle, that's the tour. And once again, people can go online, maybe get tickets, make inquiries. Where do they go? Oh, definitely go to uh, my Facebook if they want to learn more about me and follow me. Uh, go to spookedinseattle.com if they want to take the tours and uh, check out my books on Amazon. Great. Beautiful. Thank, thank you, Ross. Ross. We will do this again. And thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Coming up next, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience. And after that, Gary Mance uh, hosting American Road Trip Talk. We would love to have you join us. Stay tuned to AM 1150, Seattle's home for alternative talk. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.